0: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW group. Void We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, everyone. I'd like to welcome you back to How to Be Wrong, a podcast spearheaded by my co-host, John Trapagan. I'm John Keg, and I'm so very happy to welcome Peter Catapano, a longtime editor in the op-ed section of The New York Times and founding editor of the Stone and Disability Columns of the Times that I enjoyed for very many years and uh, was happy to contribute to a few times. These were well-established outlets um, where outstanding thinkers of the world explored their own errors and invited readers to explore theirs. He is also the co-editor of Question Everything, out from Norton last year, which is a really brilliant collection of the articles that he edited over many years. Uh, which fe- featured contemporary public philosophers. Peter, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you, John and John. It's a pleasure to
1: be here. Thank so before, you. So, so before launching in with some questions about philosophy, editing, and fallibility, I wanna thank you for being patient with my editors as a writer for you over several years. Uh, you're in a handful of editors that absolutely leveled me to um, pretty good effect. Um so thanks for that. And and now on to the questions. I want to start by asking you personally, intellectually, professionally, politically, when have you been wrong and how did this affect you as a thinker, editor, or person? Um maybe just start with one one uh, Ill- illustrative
2: case perhaps. Sure, sure. Well, well that's that's a very a, a rather large a question to start out with, and I'm sure you know could I could go on for most of the discussion about um, some about what some of those errors were. Um, one of the things I started thinking about when I started thinking about appearing on this podcast was the was the idea of wrongness uh, and error. Um, and of course, you know, being who, who I am, I immediately started to kind of question the whole concept of, of, of wrong and, you know, how I would approach it when I spoke to you. So, you know, working in the newspaper business, we have the most obvious, uh, you know, form of error, which is a factual error, right? Errors are uh, factual, uh, factually incorrect, not true. Uh, but then, of course, you know, we have wrongness as in moral behavior, um, errant behavior, inappropriate behavior, and all those things are contextual. So, um, I mean, I can give an example of a of a factual error I made uh, one time very early in my career. I was uh, before I was an editor. I was uh, a copy boy, and then a news clerk. A news clerk was someone who sat on the desk and answered phones and did various typographical. Um, tasks for the page. And one of the things I had to do was um, uh, print something called the weather ear. If you read the news, the print edition of the New York Times at all, you would notice on the front page, there is a, a small box in the top right that summarized the weather for the day, partly cloudy, showers late, New York. So I had this job for a couple of months and I was informed one day when I went into work that uh, I actually ran, uh, Wednesday's, uh, weather year on Wednesday and Thursday. Um, I had somehow reproduced the previous day's, uh, weather summary. Um, I was of course humiliated and, uh, luckily for me, the weather on Thursday was very similar to the weather on Wednesday. So only my <laughs> supervisor and a few other people noticed, um, that kind of factual error in a situation that like in a newsroom where uh, a premium is put on accuracy, you know, it made me more anxious and more careful, I guess. Um, So it kind of created those, um, those effects in me. Uh, But I think the more interesting types of error and the ones that maybe we'll end up talking about some more have to do with um, sort of, uh, how 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 we assess ourselves and our relation to the world and i definitely made plenty of errors in that uh, area um, one of them was I, I think that i probably underestimated um, the potential i had to do the kind of work that i would end up doing um, i was very pessimistic I, I found i found over time that my pessimism about um, my own future and the future of what I was going to do and those around me, um, it was pretty off the mark. Um, and it was sort of something that I was pleased to find out that I was wrong about over time.
3: That's, uh, that's really interesting. Um, I think having that kind of, would you describe that pessimism, I mean, would you describe it as insecurity or just Kind of a a pessimistic outlook on what your abilities might be.
2: Um, I I think I think it probably has something to do with uh you know the time of life that I was at when I was starting that everybody sorts of you know sort of uh, uh, makes the transition from teenage years and young adulthood to pro- the professional world and if you have your sights set on something in particular as I did not necessarily to work in the newspaper industry, but to work in the, you know, the business of words and language and music and art. Um, You have role models and you have idols and uh, their accomplishments seem so untouchable that it's very hard when you don't have a lot of context uh, as a young person to uh, realistically measure yourself uh, against, you know, those other people and also to kind of understand when uh measuring yourself against others is valuable and when it's destructive so i would i would guess that most people you have on the show and maybe you you yourself um had something similar go on in your 20s um so i think that's pretty much what i was referring to yeah i think one of the things that that also
3: points out is how often particularly when we're young we, we don't really recognize that those people that we maybe idolize, how many other people are involved in their accomplishments? And so that kind of brings me to kind of the question of of your role as an editor. And you know, editors certainly have a way of humbling writers. I I will say that um, one of the best things that ever happened to me was early in my writing career, I had an editor who just tore something to shreds and it was very painful. But very productive because it really taught me a lot. And so you know I, I'd like to ask you a little bit about your role as an editor, which is is you know kind of about identifying wrongdoing or maybe not so good doing or you can do better types of things. And you know you have to of course deliver that news to the person writing. And I'm curious how is that what has that taught you about humility? And how has things like the bad news and thinking about um, arrogance and intellect and talent and all those things, you know, how's being an editor sort of intersected with that?
2: Well, you know, that whole kind of uh, process that you describe, it is real. I really see that as the core job of an editor. I think most people tend to think of it as, uh, I'll just look at the way you framed it as a, you know, an aggressive act or an act of like... Um, uh, imposing, um, a set of rules on, um, a a form of expression. And, you know, to some extent that is correct. If you work for the times, obviously there's a style book, there's a standard of, uh, communication that goes on in the writing, civility, all those things matter. But really the bulk of what I do is relational, um, And so, you know, I would say just going back to the theme of being young and then um, putting in the time and the years and a job and and sort of learning what you can and cannot do um, is that I've learned to handle that those uncomfortable um, relationships a little better or uncomfortable moments in relationships a little better by seeing them as, you know, just that as as moments in a relationship. Uh, that will probably be ongoing and not as definitive uh, things. Um, I mean, I very much look at uh, um, my job as not as a corrector, but as, you know, more like a um, a facilitator, a potential. So <clears throat> uh, I'll just, you know, when, when John talks about uh, my relationship with him, which I have enjoyed and has been going on for a long time, uh, he, he always seems to depict me as a, um, a sort of a fearsome, uh, task master, when in fact, my memory of getting work from John has always been, wow, this guy writes so well. Uh, let's see what we can do to, you know, get this into shape and, and make it, uh, viable here at the times. So, um, number one, I, I, I try to see myself as someone who can develop potential in a writer, I think I'm pretty good at um, see, recognizing writers who have a little spark in them or a, a voice, something unique or um, attractive. Um, and, that, and that kind of motivates me to work a little bit harder with them to bring that out. Um, but this idea of humility is, I think, also really important because I think most people perceive editors as people who do have authority and you have a certain institutional authority. But for instance, if I work for, with somebody, you know, a very you know highly respected or esteemed uh, scholar or writer, that power um, relationship shifts. And I, I then don't have all the power. Um, or if I'm working with a beginning writer, I might uh, seem to have more power than I actually do. And so rather than consistently try to impose a certain set of standards on everything i do i am really evaluating that relationship like what is the natural balance of power that is existing right now in this relationship how can i uh you know soften it make it more productive um and to kind of carry out exchanges of criticism and suggestions without you know demoralizing someone or insulting them you know there's basic um conditions of etiquette that apply to editing the same way they apply to, you know, any sort of social behavior.
3: I think that's a wonderful observation. And, and I'm, I'm actually glad that you brought up the idea of power. This is something is I'm an anthropologist by training. And, and as an anthropologist, one of the things that I've you know, come to conclude is that all human relations involve power. Um, you know, whether we're just trying to have a conversation and convince the other person of our ideas or something, there's still a power relationship going on. And I think a lot of times we're not very conscious of that. And you you're really when you're when you're in the editor-writer relationship, it becomes very overt. Um, because you know, it's I I talk to graduate students about um not feeling bad about having a paper rejected, uh, because that's part of the process. Just take what you can take out of it. But it's really difficult to feel that way. It's difficult to kind of say, okay, it was rejected. I'll learn from this, move on and submit it somewhere else. Um, And I I think that's a, 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 it's a difficult part of the relationship between editor and writer because there is this overt power thing. And I, I, as you say, it it varies a lot depending on what's going on. Um, But in the end, for the writer, there's always the possibility of just being rejected. And, you know, that's a that's a painful experience until you I, I learned the lesson when I was a postdoc at uh, the Population Studies Center at the University of Michigan. And I discovered that all of these super famous scholars I was around were being getting revised and resubmits and having things rejected. And they were just like, OK, I'll move on. And I was like, wow, that's a
2: huge lesson. So I, I think it's a really important point. Yeah, you know, one one thing um, that I end up uh, saying a lot when I talk about my work, especially to talk to young writers, uh, goes right to this idea of, of rejection. Um, you know, rejection is very much, uh, so it, it's more about the appropriateness of a certain piece or argument at a certain time than it is about you know, the inherent quality of something. I, I try to make this point over and over that, you know, you could submit a piece to me um, tomorrow about um, about Paris. And because we work at a newspaper, there could be actually no um, news uh, relevance to this, and it would not be of interest to the editors. If something happened in Paris, you know, uh, two weeks later, that piece would immediately gain relevance. It might not get accepted, but these kind of concerns are always shifting. For instance, at a newspaper, you have in a paper, you had a limited amount of space. Number one, the space might be taken. Number two, even if you're working on the internet, you might have enough pieces for that day or that week, or someone may have submitted and run a piece on a certain topic. So none of these things have to do with the quality of the work um, we have to reject excellent pieces all the time. Um, and this is, I'm sure there are some emails between me and me, me, and John over the years that, you know, where I just, he sent something and I just said, well, this is not the right time for this. Uh, there's, there's not enough interest in this among the other editors. They're busy with other things. Um, but I'm sure in most cases he was able to publish them elsewhere where the, the door was open and the, there was a, there was more of a need for that. So I try to let young writers know that as much as possible. It doesn't I think, always help, but
1: <laughs> I think that's really helpful. I also, I mean, reflecting on this a little bit, I think that the the feeling that an editor has been harsh probably is generated from a false conception about what um, should be expected of a writer of him or her or their self. So writer's slave over their words and they don't let the words go easily Um, and um, are perfectionists enough that they oftentimes hold on to things that really should be cut or let go or or amended Um, so i want to turn to a, a question that has always sort of lingered in the background for me regarding your work at the times which is you founded the Stone, which is um, which was a long-standing column uh, written primarily by contemporary philosophers and philosophers, regardless of their intellectual proclivities, uh, are or are supposed to uh, be dedicated to this Socratic mandate or Socratic wisdom that uh, you are to acknowledge that you don't know everything, <laughs> right? Know, know that you do not know. And I'm wondering about why you as a, um, editor and as a um, member of this organization was drawn to philosophy. And I assume given the um, title of your recent Norton anthology question everything, it goes along very closely with the Socratic uh, notion of Socratic wisdom, what drew you to that sort of mindset or mentality?
2: Um, I'm pretty sure it was, you know, my training was not in philosophy. My training was in history and literature. Uh, So, you know, that 21-year-old, you know, young man I was talking about wanted more than anything else in the world to be a a writer, uh, to be a fiction writer, a short story writer, a novelist, uh, later on a poet, um, a critic, anything, you know, anything of value, uh, that I that I read I, I sort of wanted to emulate I wanted to reproduce that uh, consequently I basically spent all my I didn't start working at the New York Times full-time until I was 35 um, so all those years spent I spent before was really in the study of uh, the arts and I think in storytelling and fiction I thought the most powerful um, uh, writing and storytelling that I that I came across was suggestive, that uh, it contained ambiguities. Um, I was able to learn from reading that material and feeling what the author was trying to convey without getting an explicit argument uh, and maybe just having things be suggested by events or point of view. Um, so I think I was always naturally inclined to sort of the short story form where You're kind of left a little bit hanging, uh, and then you kind of spend the rest of the day or the week thinking about what went on. Um, So as an art form, I think I was attracted to that type of essay. And I found that philosophers were very good at raising questions and not quite answering them. And um, while that sounds like like a knock on philosophy, I sort of came to appreciate that really by a repeated exposure to people who work in your discipline uh, who showed me how productive that kind of um, acceptance of uncertainty and of constant question, uh, questioning could be. Um, I just am not interested in reading someone who makes it very clear to me at the outset what he or she thinks. I you know, once I know that I'm ready to move on. So there have to be other things that sort of captivate uh, me as a reader, because an editor is always a reader first. Um, And so the things that captivate me as a reader are not, uh, you know, uh, a list of hard facts or irrefutable evidence about one thing or another. Um, I don't feel like that's my natural space. That's uh, on that note,
3: I, I want to um, ask a little bit about um, how you might define and how you might think about, uh, I guess, maybe the future of the idea of epistemic humility or sometimes intellectual humility or maybe just humility, um, particularly as it relates to the future of American culture and politics. To me, this is one of the reasons. Uh, there's a, you actually made a very a word there that you use that I think is really important uncertainty. This is something that I think we struggle to deal with, and one of the things humility does for me is it kind of helps me to remind myself of how uncertain things are. Um, and I think this is very much a part of American culture and politics right now. And so I'm kind of curious, how would you? Um, What would you have to say about humility in terms of what's going on in our society right now and where we might be going?
2: Yeah, this is the sort of question I I almost never answer (laughs) big, uh, big questions about uh, culture and and society. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons is I've been sort of naturally trained as, you know, as an opinion editor. I am, my job is to uh, develop and nurture the opinions of others and not really have one of my own. Um, but, you know, I have thought about this obviously, and and obviously it's, uh, it's, it's the, you know, the tenor of all of this has changed in the past, you know, ten, five to ten years, um, and uh, there's so much more information out there uh, that, that it, it does seem like it's kind of spiraled out of control, this A sense of, uh, you know, reasonable humility um, is, you know, seems to be less um, uh, uh, frequent. I mean, I would say that, you know, these things are these kinds of values like epistemic humility are created in communities and cultures. Right. So, for instance, you know, if you belong to a philosophy department where uh, or even a journalism program. Where you have a kind of a small group of people, and this is, you know, uh, inculcated, you know, with the uh, to the students and the teachers, it's sort of easy and manageable to to kind of maintain that. But I think, you know, essentially what you have in whatever you would call American culture the media culture, um, is so sprawling and impossible to um, contain and 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 make consistent that you know, I think part of the frustration is maybe in the expectation that you can corral it. You know, this idea that I, I I hear people say a lot, uh, you know, we all, all used to watch the same nightly, you know, we all used to watch Walter Cronkite and, and read, you know, the New York times or whatever your local paper was. And, you know, we all agreed on what the framework for everything was that has been entirely fractured by internet culture. Um, I I don't really know if it's good or bad, um, but I but I do but I do know that you know humility in certain situations is um, it, it is is useful, um, but other than that, I can't really predict you know where uh, things are going. I, I try to you know fix what I can fix uh, when when somebody needs fixing and uh, hope you know the rest of it works out.
1: We uh we all have um the three of us have kids, and have raised daughters, and um, I guess my next question has a little bit to do with um where you see humility and epistemic humility and sort of the willingness to question things and um, sit in ambiguity, how that plays in early childhood and also in your work um, with the New York Times School uh, that really worked with, I think, high school students. And it seems like you were very interested in um, drawing high school students into an intellectual place where ambiguity was um, respected respected and um, thought of as pedagogically valuable and I wonder if you could say a little bit about that and also how um, how our respect for the truth comes into that as well. in other words um, if we respect ambiguity in a certain way we can tip into an unhelpful relativism but at the same time uh, we don't want to be so committed to finding the absolute truth. And there has to be some sort of middle ground. And I'm wondering if you could say anything about that um, in your work with uh, younger folks.
2: Right? Well, let me answer your, your last question first, because it's a little fresher in my mind. I mean, I, I think that, you know, it, the, all these things are, um, they sort of arise from a, I think, a base, a basic agreement that, you um, that there are that that we're all sort of on the side of of human flourishing and reduction of harm, um, you know, to to other living creatures. And, and I think I think that most of us start there, and and that you know all of these sort of what we call certainty and uncertainty. I think they really have to do with how well we think they serve this basic purpose. Um, and that's And that's the context. Um, so, you know, I feel like that's maybe a subtle distinction to try to communicate to a younger person. But I, I will tell you that, you know, what I uh, something I wanted to say before when you were speaking about um, this sort of Socratic idea of, of knowing that you don't know, uh, and also, you know, understanding over time, my own understanding over time, that philosophy was still a beneficial activity, even though it was not a, a, que- a question uh, and answer uh, type situation. Um, was that, you know, as a young person who was always kind of putting a lot of pressure on myself to know everything that I felt like I wanted to know this idea of being able to exist and flourish in uncertainty was a huge relief. So it it actually released me from like a lot of this teenage angst that I had been carrying over into my, you know, my thirties, probably, um, that, you know, that this was okay. You know, that like you're, you know, your level of of understanding is okay, you know, given the you know, the basic requirement that you're making an effort, right, that you're using your basic abilities to try to meet other people in this place, this place being that common denominator of we all want to reduce, you know, generally want to reduce harm, pain and suffering for other people. Um, As long as you are moving in that direction in that intention with others, then you're sort of on the right track and it is really time and understanding that takes care of those gaps, you know, that exist, um, that exist before. The other thing that, that I mean, I learned that you know, I should, I really want to emphasize this I, as almost everything that I've done that I really am proud of in my life. Um, starting and editing the stone was something I had no idea, uh, about in you know in in real terms when i began if i had known what i was getting into i would not have gone ahead with it but i you know one of the things i learned in uh, gary gutting you might remember gary gutting was the you know one of the foundational uh contributors to the to the stone and a a great sort of like guide to me in, in in navigating all this um was this idea of what you know, science really is science. Really, is a a process of um, um, experimentation and just an acceptance that a lot of these experiments are not going to work. A lot of these assertions that you know, error is built into the process of knowledge gathering. Um, it's remarkable to me how I really never even thought about that throughout my entire education, uh, and it took this job and this contact with working philosophers to. Uh, To kind of wake me up to it. And also, I'm just kind of shocked that we don't have a way yet to communicate that to young people. It sounds touchy-feely to say, you know, it's okay to make mistakes. And that's all true. But I think that, you know, kids tend to not really internalize that because culturally, they get a lot of other messages about perfection, about correction and testing. And um, just the experience of watching my daughter go through high school where she was uh, really gifted at um, uh, conversation, context, verbal things, and not very good at uh, testing and at nu- at numbers, and the sort of kind of pounding that she, you know, suffered as a student because of that um, was really unfortunate, and I couldn't really do anything about it <laughs> except tell her it, was, it would be better when you got to college, and uh, thankfully, she's in college now, and it has been better.
3: We have very similar daughter experiences. Uh, my daughter is a, a junior in high school right now, and and, and it's it's been quite a challenge to um, help her not have to be focused entirely on all of these measures that get thrown at the students, and that that's how they're basically supposed to define their identities, is in terms of what their grades are, or whatever other thing is. And the schools struggle with, I think, reacting to the very different ways people learn and the different things that they're good at and not so good at. And so that's, uh, it's really interesting for me to hear you talk about that because I've, I've been <laughs> dealing with the same sorts of things over the last few years with my own daughter. And um, she's, you know, managed to find herself reasonably well. But it's, it, our society's not really set up very well to, make space for people who are, you know, different in the ways that they learn. Um, Because there's, I think in part of it, there's a lot of demand on certainty. You need to know who you are. You need to have the right answers. Um, Another thing you said I think is interesting is um, our, our society, in our society, people generally do not understand what science is about. Most people think it's a search for the truth. Science is not. It's a process of falsification. It's basically forever asking the question, what are the limits of our knowledge, rather than saying, what's the truth? Oh, we've got it. And, and this is why, you know, we've had all this problem with, you know, people getting all irritated about, you know, Fauci and not giving the answer on vaccines or whatever it is. Well, that's not how science works. It changes as you learn more things. Um, and I think that's a, that's a really important observation.
0: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
1: Um, one of the most moving set of pieces that you've edited um, were Oliver Sacks' last works. Um, and Sacks is a sort of hero of mine and um, became more so through the, the essays that came out um, under your uh, guidance, perhaps. And, um, I was wondering if you might be able to say a little bit about that experience, cause I know it's been on your mind and I, I'm asking in the context of this, um, program in part because, um, death is one of these, um, <laughs> is a primary experience by which we understand our own efe- ephemeral, the ephemeral nature of our lives. And also the, um, ways that certainty can suddenly run aground, the certainties of life can run aground. And it seems that Sachs's last days really were, from what I've read uh, from your essay, from the essays, um, a case where an incredibly talented man, a genius, uh, I would go so far as to say, really um, came to face finitude, uncertainty, with a type of really admire, admirable, um, strength and, um, conviction. And I was wondering if it, if you could say a little bit about that experience.
2: Sure. Sure. I mean, I think this is, um, uh, just, just to, you know, I, quickly, um, summarize, um, when, when Oliver, uh, found out that he had, um, metastatic cancer in 2014 or 15 he uh he decided that he was going to write a piece you know informing the public about um about his illness and what he thought about his life and uh, how he planned to live out his next days and that was a sort of um uh, um initial essay it was he called my own life after uh the autobiography that david hume wrote when he was uh in a similar situation. Um, you know, I think the, 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 the remarkable thing about that experience for me <clears throat> at the time was, um, was sort of the, 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 the confidence and the baseline courage that it took to, number one, um, uh, accept, you know, the news the way he did, uh, but also then to decide that he was going to share it publicly. I, I thought, you know, this is something that a lot of people would just want to keep private. Um, and, uh, you know, for instance, um, you remember the writer Nora Ephron, who uh, who died uh, several years ago, but, you know, didn't tell anybody about her illness and her death came. It, she was handled as a private affair, and that was her... Uh, her decision um, I guess you know we were talking about the power relationship that uh, before and and so this was a really like new situation for me uh, number one to uh, be handling somebody's um, public declaration of their you know imminent death didn't really feel like the typical um, essay and so I definitely approached it with a lot more, sensitivity. There was a concern that I had at the very beginning that, uh, well, I need to, uh, no matter what this is, I need to impose a certain amount of uh, structure and style on it the way I would with any piece. Uh, I actually realized at some point I could not really exhibit any type of deference or favoritism to this person, even though he was dealing with this really difficult situation. So um, I think what it did most uh, immediately was have my, my personal self and my moral self bump up against my professional self. And then you try to figure out how to uh, sort of disentangle those two things to try to meet the needs of, you know, Oliver, who you know, it, he basically, you know, entrusted me to be the facilitator for this, and he tr- he chose the times as the publication to pu- to uh, to release it in. You know, those are those are uh, acts of trust and generosity, uh, and I really felt in the beginning an obligation to uh, reward that trust. So. A lot of what happened in the very beginning was me going to my superiors and telling them that we had this, deciding to publish it, but then also um, trying to modulate how much intervention there would be on the piece, because I imagine he'd be very uh, uh, connected to the words there, more so than you would be in a typical essay. And so there was a lot of that kind of negotiation going on. And, you know, in the end, I did allow some room for my personal self to express condolences. And, uh, but then I, but then I had to kind of suggest changes that were, you know, felt uncomfortable to suggest. Uh, But ultimately, between him and his um, assistant and his partner who were with him very closely uh, throughout that time, we were able to agree. But again, that was due to a relationship that had evolved over years. I first worked with Oliver in 2008. Um, I later worked with his his partner, Bill Hayes, uh, for a number of years, and I think really solidified a sense of trust with him. And so, when the time came for them, as a you know uh, a group, an intimate, a family uh, unit, to decide what to do, they felt comfortable enough coming to me and coming to the times to handle it. So it was really a playing out of those relationships that occurred. I could detail the actual editorial changes that went on and, you know, someday I might, but that was really the least of it at that point. Oh, John, all of a sudden we're not hearing John. I'm sorry. Hey, I wanted to do
1: one quick follow up and I'm sorry. I was muted there. I, um, the, the essays that Oliver wrote, um, became a book called Gratitude. And, um, I wonder if you, since you're so familiar with those essays, um, why is it called gratitude and what is the relationship between gratitude and maybe the openness and willingness to change one's life on the basis of, science on the basis of you know new experiences. How does that do you have a sense about like what Oliver meant by gratitude and what does it mean for you I guess?
2: Well, uh, I mean he does use the term gratitude in the essays, but I, I think you know it, it was the publisher. So these four essays, so I worked on four of these essays. Um, I believe three of them were taken for the book. And then a previous essay that I didn't edit firsthand, um, he wrote when he turned 80. Um, And so the theme of the whole, you know, that series was a kind of sort of end of life um, reflection. And I mean, the thing I would say about that in general was that, you know, I think Oliver was always a philosopher as well as a scientist. I, I think that's kind of indisputable. Um, even if you go back subject by subject and see his interest in consciousness and things that are generally considered the the province of, you know, philosophy, uh, and and also his work always had a philosophical curiosity driving it. There was no really great Oliver Sacks work that didn't involve, excuse me, that didn't involve that curiosity and that philosophical, um, a drive, um. So, you know, I I think that those things characterize those particular essays. Um, I think, you know, the gratitude aspect of it was just um, that he felt he had times in his life earlier on, if you read his uh, full autobiography on the move, uh, you'll, you'll realize that he had, you know, crisis and trauma and trouble in his life. um, And, and struggled a lot with, uh, family matters, a, a brother who was schizophrenic, um, you know, a period of, of, uh, drug abuse. Uh, he, he, he was, uh, abused amphetamines. He was, a um, a motorcycle enthusiast, not that that's a problem or, and a weightlifter. He had a very varied life. And I think he had the opportunity to look back and just be thankful that he survived, um, what it was he had survived, but also, um, I felt like it was a, a sort of thank you to, um, everyone who made his, uh, literary work and life possible. <clears throat> and he calls it, I think, an intercourse with the world, uh, that he was able to have, uh, by writing and, uh, and reading, excuse me. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, to me, that was the main source of, uh, source of, the gratitude uh but i was always left with the question and i'm still thinking about this is uh if you have gratitude you must be grateful to somebody or something and i still haven't figured out what that thing or a person was or being was i i mean i i think about that book
1: and what you just said that it allowed he was grateful for the intercourse with the world and one of my sort of go-to philosophers is Frederick Nietzsche, who says that we must have the love of fate. And when I read on the move, um, when I read the autobi Sax's autobiography, it seems like there were a lot of serious bumps in the road. And somehow at the end of his life, he was able to embrace the, embrace the amorphati. In other words, look back, not on just the good things, but also on the most difficult parts of life and to not only accept them, but to genuinely embrace them. And at least that was my impression of the book. Um, but I think um, it, that also involves embracing the times when you've been wrong and or had to correct course. So sorry to go on at length about that.
2: No, 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 I'm still, I'm still, uh, you know, because gratitude as a journalist and uh, someone who observes, lots of opinion commentary essays and things like this you know gratitude is is a really it's sort of become like a go-to you know theme it's 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 all over self-help it's all over um you know grief studies and 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 uh scholarship about mourning and and loss and all those things um but it's still you know there's there's still that question of you know who who are we grateful for? What what's the force? Who are we thanking here? May you can call it fate. Uh, scientists tend not to call it God, um, and that was you know definitely the the problem that Hume had during his time. He was suffered lots of attacks and abuse for being a religious skeptic. Um, and in fact, his whole riff in his autobiography about how well he. Uh, was tolerating the end of his life, um, you know is generally read to be a sort of um, you know a statement of defiance of those who thought he might recant uh, at the very end of his life. And I think there's something of that in Oliver's too, although in Oliver's time he did not have to suffer the attacks uh, regarding religion that because scientists had sort of pretty much made that break. Uh, but in Hume's time, he was uh, he really paid the price for it. Um, so I think it's just wonder at the at the diversity and uh, variety of the world that that ends up being the primary emotion there at the end. I Peter, I've noticed that over the years, um, as you know, I've read
3: essays that you've edited, and uh, one of the things that is that they don't usually give a sort of perfect and definitive argument. Um, instead, they tell a story, prompt some additional thought. We talked a little bit about this earlier, um, you know, kind of this question of one way to be wrong and the right way is to be willing to think around a topic. And, and I'm curious if you could uh, tell us a bit about what do you think the things are that make uh, an essay beautiful or make an argument beautiful for you, I think, um one of the things we don't talk a lot about is the role of beauty in these kinds of questions, and so I'd really be curious to see how you would frame that.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think a lot of it comes from my love of language. Um, you know, uh, that's definitely one of the root, <laughs> I would say the root causes of, of, you know, my current condition is my the love of uh, language and uh, music. Really, my love of language comes from... <clears throat> You know, I think a more primary love of music, uh, which I seem to be drawn to before I could, you know, read or write. Um, I, I think I, I think that you know, there's a recognizable um, quality to uh, a piece of writing. Um, you know, it could be called a command of language or a voice, a distinctive voice. <clears throat> Or the you know the ability to fluidly you know express you know difficult ideas or emotion, but I think all those things sort of fall under the category of beauty. Um, I respond very strongly to it. I think sometimes in my business um, it works to my disadvantage. I, I tend to respond emotionally to things and sometimes need to talk to my colleagues about. Whether I'm being entirely practical <laughs> in my, you know, in my support of a certain piece or uh, if something is just like merely beautiful and doesn't have <clears throat> a resonance for lots of readers, you know, maybe it shouldn't be published in the New York Times. Uh, maybe it should be published in a different kind of platform. Um, but, you know, I would consider myself a, a champion of, of the beautiful and mainstream conversations. I think part of what excites me about it is the context, meaning um, the biggest compliments I ever got about work that I edited was, um, I really didn't expect to see that in the times where I didn't, you know, that was so beautiful or that was so moving. um, I was surprised at this, you know, I found this in a news uh, outlet. Uh, now, of course, everyone at this point knows the Times has a huge staff of massively creative people who are making things that resemble art, you know, all the time. But it, it just in terms of my own work and my my own uh, learning curve and journalism, um, that was always the most exciting, like, I felt like I was getting away with something when I was able to publish, you know, I published poems, I publish fiction uh, in, in, in the, in the section as well. And, um, I always got a thrill that, you know, we could do this here that like, this doesn't have to be uh, relegated to the sidelines, um, of, of the discourse. And I think that, you know, people finding beauty where it's unexpected intensifies the experience a little bit, you know, it's like seeing a flower growing up in the crack in the sidewalk, um, I really still get a thrill out of being sort of like the curator of things that have that effect. Uh, can I,
3: oh, can I ask you a question? Cause you raised music and, and I'm a musician. I grew up in a household full of musicians. Yeah. My, my father's a retired professor of music and, um, and I am, I'm curious I have spent a lot of time thinking about the relationship between music and writing, and I think there's very much a relationship there and I'm curious if you've thought about that and if you have what your thoughts might be on that
2: oh yeah i mean i' have, i was have been immersed in that whole uh, i mean really just as part of, as part of trying to understand myself i've had to I've had to grapple with that um you know, I also, a lot of those years I spent before I worked at the Times, I was, you know, playing in bands. I, I grew up as a uh, a music crazy kid and I became a drummer. I played in rock bands. I studied jazz. I learned African and Indian music. And, you know, I, I was, I never expected to make a living of it, but I was entirely immersed in it. It basically drives almost everything I do. Uh, and one thing I that was distinctive about this was that I was, Uh, terrible at formal music, at sight reading. Uh, I learned everything by ear. And that includes all the songs I played in uh, every band. Uh, Anything that I played live on stage was uh, improvised at the time, apart from, you know, whatever I learned during rehearsals. Um, I think there's a sense of rightness that I acquired, you know, listening to popular music when I was young, listening to the Beatles as the formative Sort of type of music, and then going from there, um, certain words and lyrics just fall perfectly into time. There are patterns that I hear in my head as a drummer. You know, I know what you know. Triplets are and quarter notes and sixteenth notes and you know those all happen in um, in language as well. Uh, You'll find like people who write a paragraph; they'll often. You know, use a, a the theory of three, right? Where you, you have one sentence, another sentence, and you close it with the last sentence. You know, those kinds of things uh, work all the time. There's a really fascinating experimental music piece that I uh, that I was I, I've been fascinated with for years. It's called uh, "I Am Sitting in a Room" uh, by Alvin Lucier. And uh, what he did was he uh, he had a very kind of bland, mundane script that he read into a microphone. Um, And he would continually play it back in the same room till the frequencies of uh, the language became so distorted that they sort of turned just into music. Um, And of course, once they turned into music, you could hear all the same patterns, but it was somehow transformed. So to me, that was a perfect and beautiful example of uh, the connection between speech and music. Um, And we all know by listening to... You know, anytime I hear someone speaking Italian on the street in New York, if I go to Italy, I, it immediately triggers something in me. Uh, I live around a lot of Spanish speakers, Russian speakers, Yiddish speakers, I'm constantly uh, fascinated by the rhythms and the, and the tones of all those things. So they really dictate a lot of how I respond to an individual's writing. That's uh, that that
3: that is just fascinating to me. I I am by the way a drummer as well. Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> I I play jazz um, and I uh, have a trio in Austin. We play around, but um, you know it's so we're going to have to have another conversation sometime. Oh but yeah, I,
2: absolutely.
3: Yeah, I I think that that you know when I, I when I tell students about writing, I, I talk to them about there's a cadence there's a tempo there's like a flow to the writing that's very mm-hmm. similar to music and um i think that's most good writing that i read you can, i can pick that up very quickly you really feel that sense that there's this kind of rhythmical quality to the way that the sentences and the words are strung together that sure. i think is really important mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah wow that's cool i'm 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 excited a fellow drummer that's really good <laughs> yeah
2: yeah we will definitely
3: yeah. have to talk yes John, anything else we want to add? I think this has been
1: a great conversation. Peter, do you want to ask us anything, or you want to say anything else, or should we wrap it
2: all up? Um, I do have a question, and it is about this this project and this endeavor. Um, um, When you called it uh, How to Be Wrong, um, which type of wrongness were you uh, really most concerned about? Was it, um, because the, these conversations seem to go a lot into society. Um, and, um, I think really conversations that end up being political, uh, but maybe also moral. Um, so I'm just curious whether you had a primary concern in factual error or in, uh, you know, the context of moral errors or political errors. I should have asked this in the beginning, but I but it's been on my mind the whole time. John, why John, why don't you take it? Okay, take it thanks. It. And, then I, and then I'll, <laughs> and then, I'll
1: take, and then I'll take a swing at it too.
3: Well, I, I, I will tell you what I had in mind when when we started this, and and um, uh, for me, um, well, one one thing I guess that contributed to this, I I had not too long before. Uh, We started this project. I had finished uh, writing a book called Embracing Uncertainty. And in that, I spent some time thinking about um, the difficulty we seem to have in dealing with uncertainty in our world And, and really how important it is. As you said, you said, you know, once you kind of embrace the sense that things are uncertain, an awful lot of stress comes off. And I think part of that also for me was looking at our society and this, we seem to have just gotten into the situation where we can't talk to each other because I have to have the truth and be right, which means you have to be wrong. And it's this zero sum game. And so part of what was motivating me in this was thinking about trying to develop a context through the podcast to think about how can we move away from that? How can we bring more intellectual humility into our public conversations so that maybe we can begin to make some progress on things for one thing, but also because I don't think we ever get anywhere being right all the time. I think we have to be open to being wrong and listening to what other people tell us so that we can be, you know, because life is a process, it's not a position. And so we need to be keep rethinking things. So uh, when I was, when John and I were talking about this, and my thoughts on it were that I'd like to create a context through the podcast where we can get people who've thought about these things to talk about them and then other people can start thinking about them more. So that, that's kind of where I was coming from.
1: I guess where I'm, where I was coming from was a similar position. I also had just finished an essay with a mathematician, Chris Moore on, um, on uncertainty and, uh, the value of uncertainty. And I, um, I guess I'm more interested in the fact that how to be wrong is very, very easy and very, very hard. Being wrong is about as easy as possible for human beings like us. And being cool with it, or not being cool with it, but dealing with um, our own wrongdoing or our own mistakes In the right way, in a productive way that is attuned to human flourishing, as you said at the beginning, seems to be almost impossible for humans like us sometimes, at least it is for me. And um, I've come to the position that life in large part is a matter of uh, creatively dealing with uncertainty, tragedy and mistakes and Um, and so this podcast was an attempt, or for me at least is, is an attempt to talk to as many interesting, thoughtful people about what it is to be wrong in the right way. And, um, and in the process, probably, hopefully for me, at least to learn a little bit about being able to question some of the default settings of my normal life uh, which tend to lead to pain, suffering and discontent. And, um, and also, um, becoming just a little bit more humble about the positions that I take for granted and, um, and, and that's an ongoing process for me as a human being, but also as a thinker and writer. So that was my, when John suggested this, um, podcast, Uh, I jumped at it. So um, I
3: I should also I I should add to that. The the title of the podcast was the idea of Marshall Poe, who is the um, head of the New Books Network that the podcast is is uh, published through. And um, and he had said when we started talking about it, he had been interested in having a podcast that covered these kinds of topics for some time. So uh, he was part of that sort of initial thinking through of the where we were going to go
2: with this. Right. Well, congratulations to all of you. And thank you for letting me put you on the spot. So. Oh, thank you, for, <laughs> thank you
1: for joining us. Uh, it's been a real pleasure, Peter.
2: Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Okay, till next time.
1: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich.